Please listen carefully. This is the House of Speakeasy podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Brought to you live every month from House of Speakeasy. We are your hosts. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. In this episode of the podcast, three intrepid storytellers attempt to get to the bottom of the theme, It's Not You. Memoirist George Hodgman makes an argument in defence of his craft. And novelist David Evershoff recounts a love story rooted in truly being seen. But we begin with Pulitzer Prize-winning critic and author Margot Jefferson, who poses the question, if it's not you, then who is it? Well, my first problem was whenever I tried to remember or repeat the title for this evening to a friend, I would say... I'm going to be in the House to Speakeasy series at Joe's Pub, and the theme is, I'm not you. <laughs> so, I would chastise and correct myself, and I would keep doing it. So, finally, in the spirit of psychological inquiry, we can call it surveillance of Freudian slippage, I decided that I was going to go with them both. Now, I started my writing life as a critic, but was I a critic or a reviewer? I think we both know that the distinction between the two can cause acute gravitas anxiety. (laughs) You are both. That's what I reassured myself. I was also a cluster of nouns and adjectives that kept trading places. I was a black critic, I was a woman critic, And often, depending on the setting, I was the first black, the first woman, or the first black woman critic. What unified all these was critical authority. It was the armature of published judgment. That's not altogether you. (laughs) It's definitely not. It's the institution you work for. I did know that. And um, I'm going to go Janet Malcolm on us all for a minute. Just a little appropriation. Let me get it right. Every critic who is not so stupid or full of himself that he does not notice what is going on knows that what he does, while not morally indefensible, does engender and promote um, a distasteful form of omniscient narrator hubris. I did know this, and eventually I came to tire of it. I I thought that it would be interesting. No, I thought that I needed to try to write from ambivalence and vulnerability and see if they yielded some kind of authority. Margot, I told myself, memoir is so not you. I said it firmly. I said it calmly. I said it with that that kind of cheap irony that you hope will disguise brute fear. And I did say it in despair to myself. This memoir can never be you. Everything in my upbringing had taught me I was not to, I should not write memoir. 
Now, we always um, are telling our writer friends and our writing students, oh, you know, use what you have. <laughs> use the material you've got. Now, what was I supposed to do with that? Nothing in my background um, encouraged, led, um, or even I often felt it would allow me to write memoir. Memoir, um, it shows you off and it shows you up, too. Um, and in the world I grew up in, this was not considered appropriate. Uh, a good Negro girl was supposed to represent her race and her sex, her people, at their distinguished, accomplished best. You notice I'm now folding my hands in that discreet way we once did. She does not show off, no, she does not show off, and she does not confess weakness unless it's a stepping stone to victory, the triumph narrative. I was raised in Negro land to be, or I was taught I should be, outstanding but modest, proud and forbearing, ambitious but decorous. Uh, yes, I was also taught that class would make me universal enough so that I could cross most boundaries of race and gender. The apparatus of class, the accoutrement of class. I now realize that um, I was actually taught to show off by not seeming to. And this is the good taste version of showing off, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Even after I had actually started to work on the or, or my memoir, whenever people would ask what I was working on, I would struggle and, and often almost babble. I would then practice a, a brief, brisk, clear description with a friend, and in the moment I would flub or just kind of maim or rush my lines. I would say something like, well, I'm writing about um, the world I grew up in, which is variously called and has called itself. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois called us the Talented Tenth. Du Bois was my black history validator, right? Um, and we have been called, and we have called ourselves um, over a couple of centuries, over time, um, the colored elite, the Negro aristocracy, the black upper class, the black bourgeoisie, and here came my black leftist bona fides, a bunch of bougie blacks. <laughs> I was desperate to parry criticism and to deflect any kind of expectation that I felt would be burdensome or censorious. Well, fool said my muse, look in your heart and write. This is actually a very good um, credo for a memoirist. And if your heart is kind of like um, a multiplex with a different show going on in every chamber, well, <laughs> you perform. <laughs> and as the critic, you watch the performers and the performance. So I um, kept writing. And one day I um, wrote this. I wrote, um, in Negro land, we thought of ourselves as the third race, poised between the masses of blacks and all classes of Caucasians. Like the third eye, 
the third race, we thought, um, had an intuition, a wisdom, an enlightened knowledge that the other two races lacked. We had education, we had sophistication, and we had standardized verbal dexterity. And if, as was said by many, we ached and longed and strove to be white. And if, as was said, we boasted over much of uh, the white blood, le sang de blanc, as New Orleanians like to call it, that coursed or ran or trickled lightly through our veins. Um, if we placed too high a value on the, the manners and the looks and the morals that were called the Anglo-Saxon birthright, white people wanted to be white just as much as we did. Yes, they tried just as hard and they failed just as often. They failed more often, but they could pass, so no one objected. It's not you, <laughs> but it is you. I'm not you. Mm, I am you. Once I stopped resisting so much these um, vacillations and oscillations and contradictions and such, uh, I found that the best way to write was piecemeal. Bits here, bits there, um, stories and anecdotes and scenes, non-sequential, just written and gathered and collected out of sequence. I started to, in fact, um, change pronouns and tenses and personae. No single narrative voice revealed itself was true, um, was accurate, was a rendering um, of this world, which was so full of rehearsals and performances and strategies. Uh, so I would uh, try all kinds of things I had not really done um, in my criticism. I historicized, I confessed. Confession is very cold sweat making. I analyzed, I, that I could do, I was a critic. And I meditated. Um, there's always kind of gravitas in meditation, isn't there? And I realized too, as the material collected, that every time I tried too hard or too early to fix a structure, you, know, you, you wake up often as a writer and you're this, I've got it. I had this vision in the wee small hours of the morning. This is going to work. Every time I would do that in that fixed, omniscient narrator way, it worked like a prohibition. It would get in the way. So I said, all right, go with it again. You, know, you will find the structure. It will start to reveal itself. You will start working with what's emerging. When I did, finally find it, um, it was not a long line structure with an arc. It was a forced march to the fragmented outcome. And when the book was done at last, at last and at last, and revised and published, and when I'd read it and reread it, um, I realized, or I could say, and I can say now, this memoir, it's not you, Margot. It's your present 
negotiating with versions of your past for a future you'll be willing to live in. Thank you. Jefferson, right. Our next writer tonight is one of the great magazine and publishing editors in New York, George Hodgman. He's been an inspiration to many, many young writers. So uh, I, I trawled through his writing to find out uh, did he have any advice to all of us writers out here? And I found, actually, a great line of his, which I want to share with you. This is George in his own words. I love the process of creating a book, of finding out what is on your mind and what the book wants to be and say. It's a magical process. And I agree with that. Writing a book is about finding the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you George Hodgman. Hello. Thanks for coming. You can't really see who people are. Are my enemies there? Um, uh, not about you seems an odd choice for an evening where, you know, a memoirist is invited. Um, uh, I'm used to being in these situations, though. Memoir, for me, began when I was um, 16 years old. I grew up in this little town in Paris, Missouri. 1,200 people. And I had not, I didn't know any writers. I had never been around anybody who wrote. I just had no literary experience. And, but but I, I got my driver's license. <laughs> um, um, and I read in the newspaper that 50 miles away in Columbia, Missouri, Maya Angelou was going to be speaking at uh, Stevens College, which was a school for young ladies. And um, uh, I got myself together, and I drove over to see Maya Angelou just because I hadn't read the book. I liked the, I liked the title, really. I thought it was a really good title. And um, I was blown away. I was so blown away by this woman. Maybe you only get that in adolescence. Maybe it's hormonal. Um, but she was there for three days, and I went every day. And on the last day, she lost her glasses. And, you know, people were kind of drifting out of the auditorium, and it was like, Miss Angelou has lost her glasses. <laughs> like, you know, call the fire department. And, and I was like, I'm going to find those glasses, and we are going to be friends forever. <laughs> and... Uh, and yeah, I did. I found him. <laughs> and, uh, 
And before I gave them back to her, I put them on. <laughs> I am Maya. <laughs> um, and, and, and we didn't get to be friends forever. Um, but she signed my poster and she signed it, Joy, exclamation, which seems kind of disappointing. Um, I kind of wanted something like several paragraphs. Um, but 10 years later, when I was at uh, Boston College in graduate school, I went to hear her again. And I had had my poster dry mounted. And, um, and I drug along that same old poster. I gave her the poster, thinking she would be very touched. <laughs> She looked at me like, what are you white people up to now? Um, but uh, um, she wrote, and perseverance. <laughs> and, uh, and I needed it. I, I really needed it. Um, so you see, there were, there were books. There were books that were books that you read for the story. There are books that you read for the history or the information or whatever. But there were what I called my friend books. And Maya was my friend, you know, for a long time. And Joan became my friend. She was a more difficult friend. But um, um, I, I, I smoked unfiltered Pall Malls at the University of Missouri for the first six months because Joan did eat and smoked them. They didn't have filters and the tobacco comes out at the end. And if your mouth is dry, they stick to your teeth. And it's like your teeth looks like they're growing hairs. Um, I was quite a freshman. Um, but anyway, memoir really introduced me, this kid from the country, to the world, really. It, I had not been anywhere. And I went with my friends. But as the years passed and I became an editor and I, I watched my uh, books be reviewed or I heard conversations, I definitely got a sense that you know, memoir is suspect. Because even though sitting down and telling your story is the most natural thing on earth, it is at the same time something that we really don't want to allow other people to do. We're very, very conscious that people say too much about themselves or that some kind of narcissism or solipsism creeps into the experience and it becomes a self-centered exercise. So if you decide that you are going to write a memoir, I think that those words, not about you, hang heavy in the air almost all the time you go to do your work. I didn't decide to write a memoir. I didn't decide to write as personally as I did. It just kind of occurred. Um, I had lost my job and I went home for my mother's 90th birthday.
And my mother had a good agreement that she could only drive to the grocery store, to church, and to the bridge club in our town, which was like, you know, maybe three blocks. But she had broken her promise. And on a Sunday, she drove 12 miles away to a bridge game. And after the bridge game, she went to McDonald's with the ladies and did a hell of bender bender. And they brought her home in the police car. <laughs> and she'd lost her driver's license. And so I came home, and the housekeeper said, you know, my, my mother had her like out trying to practice to retake her driver's test. And it, it, it just wasn't going to happen. And my mother was motion. My mother was America, an American woman of her time. She lived in the car. She, if she was depressed, she got in the car. She drove. She drove me. And we went many places. We didn't stay home. And so this, this loss, this first um, little death, really struck me. And uh, I decided that I was going to stay home with her for a while and try and help her. And, and this memory came into my head. And I was an only child. I grew up in a, my first town was this little town called Madison, Missouri, which is 528 people. And when I was growing up there in the late 60s, they didn't have a kindergarten there yet. And my parents, I guess, sort of got the idea that they had a problem on their hands. And they realized that they, they were like, we've got to get this kid into some sort of a situation where he can mix with others. Um, and uh, so they paid tuition for me to go to kindergarten in a, in a, in a, in a nearby town. And the notion was that my mother would drive me to the county line where I would meet the school bus. Every morning, and I began to remember this so well, I could see this picture of my mother with her summer blonde hair and a Kent cigarette and looking into the mirror and trying to get her look together. And there I would be in the doorway looking in with my Beatles lunchbox. <laughs> Mother, it's time to go. It's time to go. No, we paid tuition. We paid tuition. As if the fact that we paid tuition meant that we could go whenever we wanted to. Um, I would usually go and go into the other room and eat my lunch. And... Uh, but I always remember, it was like, all of a sudden, I don't know what, some alarm would go off in her head, and my mother would reach down and grab me and turn me around, and we'd head to the car. She'd rush to the car, and she took her shoe off. She'd always put their, uh, her bare foot on the gas. We listened to KXOK St. Louis. Johnny Rabbit was the DJ. I thought I was Diana Ross. Uh, Petula Clark, The Righteous Brothers, 
my first literary achievement was knowing the words to the songs. And my mother would put her foot on the gas and we would just fly <laughs> to that county line. And so writing the memoir was never really, um, it wasn't a chosen thing. It was, I had a scene, I wrote it down. I don't know why I wrote it down, but I began practicing more and more and more. I began to, um, to take more and more down. And I, um, I realized that I was writing a memoir, whether I wanted to or not. And what got me into it was not me, but my mother. They found that nice quote, the magic of writing a book has never lost its luster for me. I have always thought that that finding and that creation is such a magical journey. And I think that even if you are writing a memoir and it is about you, and mine turned out to be about me as well as my mother, it's also mostly what the book wants it to be. It's about the book, and it's about the place, and it's also finally about what I always think this book means to me, and it's, I think memoir is a treasure box, and you can put all the things in it that you have loved all your whole life whether it's a dog or a, the way a day looked when you were a little kid or something your grandmother baked. It can all go in your magic box. And so, you know, the next time you hear some all-knowing literary person put down memoir, tell them to put on Maya Angelou's glasses. <laughs> You've been listening to House of Speakeasy's seriously entertaining podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Now, back to the show. And now we're going to take a little trip far away from New York. We have our next and final speaker tonight, has written a number of novels, including most recently The 19th Wife, and you probably have either heard of or hopefully seen the movie based on his, one of his earlier novels, The Danish Girl. <laughs> he also has worn many wonderful hats, including a teacher at Columbia, where he still teaches, and also until recently was an editor at Random House, where he edited everyone from Truman Capote and Norman Mailer to Gary Steingart and W.G. Seabold. So I'm very, very happy to have David Ebershoff here tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, let me set the scene. It's Paris. It's 1928. And it's an oil portrait called Queen of Hearts. The model for this sitting, she's chosen a short skirt as pink as a bougainvillea. And from her ear hangs a large pearl 
almost as luminous as the one worn by the girl in the famous painting by Vermeer. But it's her eyes I always return to. Big, dark, mysterious eyes cast in the direction of something just outside the frame. Her name was Lily Elbe, and she was the inspiration for my first book and the recent film, The Danish Girl. When she sat, woo, <laughs> when she sat for this portrait, she was at a crossroads. After many years of internal struggle, she had finally come to understand who she really was. Assigned male at birth and given the name Einar Wegener, she finally could look into the mirror or into portraits like Queen of Hearts and see her true self. But she was a transgender woman decades before the word transgender existed. At that time, she had no resources to turn to, virtually no information to look up, no organizations to seek help from, no representation in the media, and no one in the medical establishment willing or able to help her. And yet, Lily continued to search. And fortunately, she was not alone on that journey. In fact, the painter, who painted Queen of Hearts was her biggest champion, her wife, Gerda Wegener. It was Gerda's love and support that played a crucial role in, in Lily's transition, and so did Gerda's art. I first came across the story of Lily almost 20 years ago, deep inside a book about gender and identity and, of all things, literary theory. It was just a brief mention, just a couple paragraphs long, and it said that Lily had been the first person to have what we now call gender reassignment surgery. I had always thought Christine Jorgensen, an American in the 1950s, had been the first, and so I wanted to know who was Lily Elba, and why had she been forgotten, or mostly forgotten, from history. This was so long ago, it was before Google, and I did what writers used to do, I went to the library, and I looked her up, and I began to learn about her remarkable life as a transgender pioneer, and about her extraordinary marriage to Goethe, and the role that art and painting had played in their story. And I remember thinking, wow, that would make a great book. And then, almost simultaneously, I had a second thought, and this was it. I thought, I can't write that book. I was a young writer, burdened by self-doubt, insecurity, anxieties, and I let my fears talk me out of writing about Lily Elbe. And six months went by, but I kept thinking about her, and I kept thinking about her courage. And then one day, I had a vision, a vision of myself a couple years in the future. And in this vision, it was Sunday morning, and I got up, and I went to the front door, and I picked up the Sunday New York Times, and I opened up the book review. And in that book review was a review of a book about Lily Elbe written by someone else. <laughs> and in that vision, I experienced a future emotion. I felt my future regret. 
Regret not so much that someone else had written about her, but that I hadn't even tried. And so I saved a little money, and I saved some of my vacation time, and I bought a plane ticket to Copenhagen. When I told my boss I was spending my two weeks there, he asked, why Denmark? And I said, I'm looking for a friend. When I got to Copenhagen, the first place I went was the Royal Academy of Arts. This was the art school where Lily, when she lived designer, had studied, where she met Gerda, where they fell in love, where they became artists, and where they began their journeys together. I wanted to be where they had been. I wanted to walk the halls they had walked. I wanted to climb the stairs they had climbed. I wanted to sit in the classrooms they had studied in. I wanted to stand in the studios where they had painted. I wanted to stand beside the window and see how the light fell where they had worked. But it was also here that I first saw many of the images of the Lily paintings, paintings by Goethe of Lily that showed her as she really was and how she wanted to be perceived. And if you think about it, think about Goethe standing at her easel, looking at her spouse for hours or for days or for weeks. And think of the compassion and the love and acceptance it would require for her to paint the person she had married as she saw herself. And on the other side of it, think of Lily. Think of how brave she was, how much honesty it required to, to be naked before her wife and expose herself and say, this is me. There's a scene in the film in a Paris art gallery. And Gerda, played by Alicia Vikander, is showing a new batch of these lily paintings. And they're a sensation. Everybody wants to know who is the model? Where is the model? Who is Lily? Is she here? And Lily is there, except no one can see her. She's in disguise. She's dressed designer, and Eddie Redmayne, playing Lily, is wearing a high starched collar and a tight necktie. Almost, it feels almost like it's strangling her. On Lily's face flickers a desperation. She wants to be seen. She wants to be known. She wants to say, I'm here. The woman in the portrait that's me, Lily. That is me. Two years after Lily sat for Queen of Hearts, she traveled to Dresden for a series of experimental surgeries. She knew that failure, uh, there was a high risk of failure, and she understood the risks, but she also knew that she had to do this and that a false life is no life at all. She wrote in a letter that she was prepared, that she said, even if she succumbed physically, she was reconciled to that because she will at least have known what it was to live. Last September, I was on my way to Italy to attend the world premiere of The Danish Girl at the Venice Film Festival. 
and I knew this was going to be a big thing, and it was going to be a red carpet, and movie stars, and tuxedos, and cameras, and a lot of hoopla, and very exciting. But I also knew I needed to do something before all of that. I needed to remind myself what this was all about. And so I went to Dresden to visit Lily's grave. It's a simple plot, sunny. There's no headstone, no marker. But the grass above her is just a little bit greener than the lawns around it. And the cemetery master told me that about 10 people come every month to leave a flower or a candle and to pay their respects. I sat down on the grass beside Lily's grave. And I tried my best to tell her that this, that all of this was happening because she had dared to be free. Identity. Who am I? Who do I want to be? Who do I want others to see? These are some of the questions that I believe everyone in this room have wrestled with. And who among us hasn't questioned the reflection in the mirror? I believe that our self-doubts and our anxieties and our securities, they're really about identity. And when we conquer them and we overcome our fears, we are that much closer to being free. Almost 100 years ago, a Danish woman, although she insisted on calling herself a girl, put her foot up on a chair and posed for a portrait called Queen of Hearts. Her props were a deck of cards and a cigarette. And in the portrait, in the portrait, she shows us who she really is. In the portrait, she shows us her best card, the Queen of Hearts. In the portrait, she shows us her best self, a woman named Lily. And in that portrait, she shows us what it means to step forward and tell the world, this is me. Thank you very much. And that was David Ebershot on stage for House of Speakeasies, It's Not You. And with that, we've come to the end of our show. Thanks to all of our performers, Margot Jefferson, George Hodgman and David Ebershoff. Come back next time for more writers, more stories and a brand new theme for our storytellers. And to learn more about House of Speakeasy and what we do as a nonprofit, visit our website, houseofspeakeasy.org. And if you're in the New York area, please join us at one of our live shows at Joe's Pub at the Public Theatre in Manhattan. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. Thanks for listening.